This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Lovely Podcast. You know, Christy, that phrase, uh, books that have changed the world and have changed us, is a tagline that we use every episode because all the books we discuss have changed the world in significant ways, but there is no one who has ever written in English that has influenced the world more than a writer that we're discussing today. And that can only be William Shakespeare. I mean, there's no arguing that he contributed heavily in standardizing the English language as we know it. You know, in other words, he contributed to helping all of us use the same grammar, the same spelling, the same vocabulary. Uh, This wasn't something that people had really agreed on before him. And he invented over 17 1,500 unique words, most of which we still use today. Uh, In his plays, he made up so many memorable expressions. Well, of course, that's true. And many of these are iconic, and most of them we use all the time, even though we don't even realize where they came from. And maybe we've never even read the plays from where they came from. But when you read these expressions in the plays, you do get this feeling of deja vu, because you start hearing phrases that you recognize, and maybe you thought they were more modern than the 16th century. For example, did you know that the word addiction, like we use all the time, we're addicted to everything, but that was coined in the play Othello. Bedazzled, like we like our clothes today, that comes from Taming of the Shrew. If something's being described as eventful, that's from As You Like It, the expression good riddance, that's from Troilus and Cressida. In a pickle, that comes from The Tempest. Of course, it's Greek to me, comes from Julius Caesar. I mean, there are so many. We could go on and on. (laughs) You know, I'll never forget the night that I went with you to watch King Lear. And I heard King Lear use an expression that I thought my mother had invented. And uh, it's actually a quote, and it's how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. And uh, I remember saying to you right there in the middle of the play, my mother used to say that to me all the time. (laughs) Well, was your 
tongue sharp, and were you a thankless child? Of course not, you know, <laughs> and as I remembered, it was probably, she was probably talking to either one of my sisters. Oh, I'm, I'm sure your sisters remember it exactly the same way. Oh, well, we're not going to ask them <laughs> or bring them in at this point. Uh, I imagine uh, she might, or your sisters might have called you a green-eyed monster. That's a term also from Othello, even if she is your, quote, flesh and blood Hamlet said that, <laughs> oh, <laughs> or it was in Hamlet. Yeah. You know, this could get out of control. Uh, I guess we could do a whole entire podcast on uh, quotes going back and forth. But, you know, uh, we don't want it to be uh, the be-all and the end-all, which comes from Macbeth. But everyone is quoting Shakespeare, you know, not just my mother. Uh, musicians like Tupac have quoted him. And, in fact, Tupac flat out said, I love William Shakespeare. And he referenced him a lot. And uh, Tupac even references the play that we're discussing today. You know, musicians from Iron Maiden to Taylor Swift reference him. I cannot imagine a wider chasm. (laughs) His appeal and influence is more widespread uh, than anyone could imagine or, or that I could even describe. And for that reason, we often just refer to him as the Bard. And yet, Christy, I know I'm not alone in saying this. He's very hard to read. I mean, it's a mental workout. I have trouble understanding not just his words, but the phrasing and the illusions. And, you know, how has he maintained his popularity? Well, of course. I mean, it is a mental workout. That's exactly right. And, and for that reason, there's a temptation. You know, I just watch the movie version or listen to a tape. But if you do that, that's a shoddy reflection of the experience. You can't fall in love with Shakespeare just by shortcutting it that way. I mean, studying his plays are exhausting. There's no question about it. I had a student today, in fact, one of my best students, actually tell me that. I stood out because this particular student is very enthusiastic about learning. He even directs little movie shorts competitively. He loves, you know, all that kind of stuff. But today he put his head on his desk in the middle of Act 4 of Macbeth. And I asked him, Luca, is the band wearing you out? Because he's a percussionist. And he said, no, Macbeth is. <laughs> and that is just as honest as anyone can put it. Macbeth, Hamlet, Othello, they all can wear us out. But Shakespeare's plays, they reward the struggle of thinking through what he's talking about. The ideas, the jokes, the turns of phrases. I mean, They get better with time. The more you watch them, the more you read them, the better you understand them, the more interesting they'll become. And I know I'm an English teacher, and so my opinion is suspect, but I'm not the only one that thinks this. I mean, according to the British Council, and they're looking at it from a worldwide scale, Shakespeare is Britain's most dominant export. I mean, he is read in every country of the world. Interestingly enough, however, when the British Council performed a worldwide study and they were asking questions like how much readers enjoyed Shakespeare or what people found him relevant in the in the modern world, it wasn't the U.S. or the U.K. that showed up at the top of the list, at least the top five countries. Well, that seems um, counterintuitive, uh, you know, so just for curiosity. What country showed up at the top for finding Shakespeare relevant? I mean, where is Shakespeare most popular in this world? Well, the answer to that would be India. <laughs> okay. But number two was Mexico. Oh, of course. So this is my point. It doesn't matter one's culture. And I, I would argue it may not even matter one's educational level in English. 
Shakespeare has something to offer. Even if you don't understand a lot of that early modern English, uh, you can still get his jokes. I mean, let's just be honest. Most of them are sexual. And whether you understand every word or every turn of phrase, you know, again, no one does. Sometimes the plots, even if you don't understand the words, are easy to follow. But even if you're not cognitively aware of what he's doing, Shakespeare almost always gives us something philosophical to muse over. And the play that we'll explore for the next five episodes is no exception. The Tragedy of Macbeth. It may be one of his strangest plays. I mean, at least is trying to give us an otherworldly experience. I mean, Macbeth can be read in many different ways. And that is exactly what Shakespeare intended. It's full of doubles and triples and repetitions. It's full of what Shakespeare referringly joked to in his play as equivocations. You should never fully trust what is being said in this play, especially by the witches. <laughs> well, let's talk about that word equivocation. Um, you know, today the term to equivocate is uh, used to mean to try to be ambiguous. And uh, of course, it meant that in Shakespeare's day, too. But um, it was... Uh, loaded with political significance in Shakespeare's day, and sometimes it was used to reference a specific act of political defiance. I mean, uh, to equivocate is something every teenager has done, as we know very well. I mean, I remember a story you told me of a girl who spent 20 minutes roaming the halls during class, and uh, when her teacher asked her where she was, she told the teacher she had been at the nurse, which was true for one minute. Then she headed to the locker room to see her friends. I mean, she was equivocating in her response. And, you know, there's many ways to speak out of both sides of your mouth, you know, to say things in such a way that the listener or reader hears or reads what they want to hear, even if it isn't really what you had said exactly, even if it isn't really even the truth. I mean, uh, to equivocate could get your head chopped off in Shakespeare's day. And in some ways, um, he's very daring to even bring up this subject. Um, but by 1606, um, the year Shakespeare most likely first performed this play for King James, he was at the height of his powers and he was clearly confident in his craft and he did not equivocate at that point. <laughs> well, it's a funny thing. Uh, there is certainly a lot of pandering to King James in this play, but no one really knows for sure if he actually saw it. I mean, some scholars believe that Macbeth was written specifically for an event King James was hosting in honor of a visit from his brother-in-law, King Christian IV, who uh, was the new king of Denmark. Uh, but we're not sure. I mean, its full title is The Tragedy of Macbeth, and it's based on early Scottish history. That we know. It is the only Shakespeare play set in Scotland. It's the only Shakespeare play to have witches. And if that is what you want to call them, Shakespeare didn't use that word. They were called weird sisters. So there's a little bit of equivocating even there. Hmm. Uh, but Gary, before we set up the Scottish context of the play, the part that does involve witches and Scottish thanes, let's set the historical context for when Shakespeare wrote the play his day. I mean, who is King James? Why did Shakespeare write this particular piece of what some people just call fan fiction for him? Uh, what are the parts of the play besides the setting that would be considered pandering to the guy who pays the bills? Um, well, sure. I mean, 
That's a lot for just a couple of minutes of context, but uh, let's start with his aunt, Queen Elizabeth I. You may want to get a piece of paper to write all this down. Okay? <laughs> as most of us know, uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, never married and as such did not have a child. And so uh, there were no certain heirs to the throne. In fact, uh, this way, one important strategy, or this is how she maintained power. She never, not till the day she died, appointed an heir apparent, a lesson King Duncan from our place should have learned. Um, But because of this, as she got older, things got really politically tricky. I mean, who was going to get the coveted title? Um, Who could make a successful claim and get the kingdom uh, to buy into that claim peacefully? If we back up to Queen Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, his sister, Margaret Tudor, married the King of Scotland, James IV, and they do have a son. And their son, James V was Elizabeth's first cousin. They don't make it easy by having all the same. This names. is why you need <laughs> you need a piece of paper, you know. Anyway, so that's a pretty close relationship. So he had a strong claim to the throne of England. James V had a daughter. We know her as Mary, Queen of Scots. When she was six days old, her father, James V, died. He was 30 at the time, so that was pretty young. Um, But six-day-old Mary became the new Queen of Scotland. And, of course, the story of the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth is much longer than we have time to tell today. The short version is that Mary was a competitor for Queen Elizabeth and most certainly a threat to the English crown. Mary was ambitious, and she had a claim to the English throne. Um, She was also Catholic and a Protestant country, and both these issues became problems for her. And ultimately, Mary was forced to abdicate the Scottish throne, and her son, James VI, became King of Scotland when he was 13 months old. Hopefully, there's not going to be a test over any of this at the end of the podcast. Well, I did notice that the Scots really do like their monarchs, and possibly young. <laughs> well, indeed. And, you know, James VI grew up as the King of Scotland, and he was 36 when Queen Elizabeth died. And somehow, you know, historians don't really agree how all this went down, but somehow a deal was struck that he would become the heir to the English throne. Uh, and when King James the Sixth of Scotland became King James I, he became the King of England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. In other words, you know, the first King of Great Britain. The, the whole Great Britain, United Kingdom, England thing is a whole nother discussion to straighten out for Americans. <laughs> now remind us, like, so that's after Queen Elizabeth, but what year was that? Well, he became uh, King of Great Britain when Elizabeth died on March 24th, 1603. And, you know, this was monumental and it was a peaceful transition. Uh, But James was certainly aware that he was not universally loved and that people, you know, like to kill monarchs in those days. And (laughs) both of his parents were dead. Uh, The reason I point this out is that this play is about killing kings. And that's a very interesting choice for a new king who's been a victim of regicide and has a terrifying fear of it for himself. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, he did seem to like theater, though, and, and he seemed to like Shakespeare in particular. I mean, two months after King James uh, of Scotland becomes King James I of Great Britain, he granted Shakespeare's acting company, Lord Chamberlain's men, a formal patent. They would become the king's men. That's a big deal. That means prestige. That meant money. That meant writing fan fiction. (laughs) Hence Macbeth. Uh, The best guesses are that it was first performed for the king in August of 1606. We know for sure that it was performed at the Globe for the general population in April of 1611. 
because there's actually a play review from that performance. But for sure, it was probably performed for the general population way before that. I mean, during the period right before the play was, we think, first performed, there were a few political events that rocked the British world, and Shakespeare speaks to these events directly and indirectly in the play. So we know that there's that connection. Gary, one of these is the infamous gunpowder plot of 1605, which today many of us know as Guy Fawkes Day. It's a holiday. Tell us what that's about and how Guy Fawkes Day is linked to Macbeth. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, but let's go back to King James becoming king of Great Britain for just a second. Uh, technically, he was Elizabeth's rightful heir but he wasn't the only one who had a claim to the throne. I mean, there were others who could have made just as strong a claim as himself. And, you know, in fact, um, Elizabeth, uh, very strategically, as you already mentioned, never formally acknowledged him as the rightful heir. You know, he ascended to the throne smoothly, but that didn't mean that that was without opposition. Um Elizabeth had actually executed his mother, which I would think is awkward. So (laughs) James was never really secure in his position. And Mary, his mother, was Catholic. Scotland and England were Protestant. So the mindset was that James I, who was baptized Catholic but raised Presbyterian, leaning Anglican. How is that for a mix? (laughs) You know, that would be relatively moderate religiously, and he was more moderate than Queen Elizabeth, but of course, there were many that weren't. And, you know, there were several obvious attempts on his life, and he was always terrified he would be assassinated, you know, which wasn't an unfounded fear. But on uh, November 5th, 1605, King James was due to appear in person to open a new session of Parliament. And the night before, a man by the name of Guy Fawkes was caught in a cellar under Parliament with iron bars, a watch, a fuse, and 36 barrels of gunpowder, you know, enough to blow up Westminster Palace and everyone inside. And uh, Guy Fawkes, along with uh, fellow conspirators, thought that by blowing up Parliament and murdering the king, they could restore the Catholic faith in England. And truth be told, it almost worked. Uh, in fact, it, it would have worked if not for an anonymous anonymous letter. And, you know, when Fox was taken to King James and asked what he was doing, he boldly claimed, and I quote, I wish to blow the Scottish king and all his Scottish lords back to Scotland. <laughs> He's not equivocating. No, he sounds unrepentant at that point, you know. <laughs> So he, along with the other conspirators, would be hunted down and executed. And among the conspirators that were hunted down was uh, Father Henry Garnet. And Father Garnet had written a book called A Treatise of Equivocation. (laughs) You know, that showed Catholics how to give misleading or ambiguous answers under oath. And when Garnet was caught, he was executed and his head was severed and displayed on a pike unequivocally. (laughs) You know, so now uh, here's what this little anecdote has to do with Macbeth. Um, The play Macbeth, which Shakespeare is studying for and writing while this is going on, references this event in a couple of subtle ways. Uh, One of the most obvious is through the character of Banquo. In the opening scene, the witches, which I know we'll talk about in a few minutes, they make a prophecy. Uh, They will say that Banquo's heir will be the legitimate king. King James I of England traced his own family tree back to the historical person of Banquo. So, there you go. 
James I is king by virtue of his birthright by his mother, by virtue of his endorsement by Queen Elizabeth, but also by lineage through generations. And, you know, Shakespeare gets off on the right foot by affirming his rightful place on the throne through the prophecies of the witches. And yet, as I said before, are they witches? (laughs) Weird sisters. (laughs) The stage directions say they are, but they are not called that in the play. Uh, We assume that's what they are by looking at their behavior, and that is one of the central motifs of the play. How much of what we know is what is really true, or is this in our minds? How much is equivocation? I mean, it's strange. It's a complicated idea. He comes back to it over and over again. Shakespeare deals with this idea of boundaries with reality on a personal level, you know, boundaries and reality on an interpersonal level, a political level, a metaphysical level. And this is where he starts by introducing the entire play with thunder and these weird sisters. The play begins with these lines. Where shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. That will be ere the set of sun. Where the place? Upon the heath. There to meet Macbeth, I come gray Malkin, paddock calls anon. Fair as foul, and foul as fair. Hover through the foul and filthy air. And that's the entirety of the first scene <laughs> okay. of Act One. You know, let's talk about a few things. Uh, First of all, all that thunder and lightning, this would not have been a normal way to start a play. You know, the 500 plays we know that were performed between 1580 and 1642, only 38 have stage directions that call for both thunder and lightning. You know, usually Shakespeare starts with a couple of characters on stage, sometimes not even the major ones. But here he starts with a burst of noise, and this would have startled the audience. You know, scholars think, The thunder sound was probably drums. The lightning was more than likely fireworks. But thunder and lightning are acts of God, and they often represent the supernatural. They're linked to superstitions. So Shakespeare links them in several plays to demonstrate that things have gone awry in the cosmic order. And that's how he's starting the play. Things are awry in the cosmic order. But here's another thing with Shakespeare's plays, and and a lot of people have heard this before, that they're written in blank verse. Now, what is that? Blank verse is meter. It's iambic pentameter. Those are big words, but all it means is he's writing with a beat, the pattern of speech. It's an I am, an unaccented syllable, and an accented one, and it sounds like this. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. There's five of those in each line. They say it replicates the human heart. If you remember the way Romeo and Juliet open uh, that play, it goes like this. Two households, both alike in dignity. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge, break, break new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. You hear this, even if you're, and I made it exaggerated, but even if you were just saying it, it would be this da-dum, 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 da-dum. This human beat. But when Shakespeare opens thunder and lightning here, bum, 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 and then the weird sisters come out, they don't speak like that. Not like any other play. It's not an iambic pentameter. He reverses it, and he writes in troic tetrameter. 
So instead of da 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 it's the reverse of the human heart. Dun, da 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 You know, the technical term is catalectic, but it's a perversion of the way that people are supposed to talk. <laughs> that is so much technical talk. I mean, what are we supposed to understand from all that? Exactly. And that's the thing. You're not supposed to understand who are these sisters. We're not even sure they're human. That's not the right heartbeat for the humans. Uh, are they or are they not? Do they have powers? If they do, you know, do they act on the world? Do they just see the future? Are they good? Are they evil? I mean, if we listen to them, they speak in puns. Fair can be pretty. It's like she's so fair. It can mean just. That's fair. Are they saying it's fair to be mean? Are they saying foul is something that's beautiful to watch? What does that mean? Fair is foul and foul is fair. I mean, this is how the play is introduced. Beware. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first thing that most anyone will notice when they watch Macbeth is how fast this play is. It has lots of little scenes and they really go by fast. Right. It's supposed to be frenetic. You enter the world here with a bang, and then there's so much action that goes on. Everything's on purpose. I mean, these scenes are like two minutes long. The movement in Macbeth is the most rapid of all of Shakespeare's plays, bar none. There's a feeling of wildness to it. Macbeth is also shorter than the other plays. It only has 2,100 lines. That's half the length of Hamlet. But it really doesn't feel short. It feels fast. Like the play itself, it's in a hurry. And this, of course, is also thematically interesting. One of Macbeth's, the character Macbeth's, one of his problems is that he can't wait. He wants the future in an instant. I mean, he literally says that in Act Two. Well, I want to go back to the witches, and let's call them witches. (laughs) Because Shakespeare himself is equivocating here by calling them weird sisters, but they are, in fact, witches. But he doesn't call them that, uh, you know, perhaps because in 1606, it's illegal to be a witch. And uh, this is Shakespeare's only play with witches. And maybe the reason he can get away with it is because it's set in the 11th century in Scotland, kind of like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far (laughs) away. And when you do that, things are supposed to be strange. And, you know, James I was a strong believer in the diabolical power of witches. And he wrote a book called Demonology. And in 1590, he had famously or, or infamously, if you will, presided over the violent persecution of witches in Scotland. The number of witches that may have been killed goes as high as 4,000. You know, God-fearing Christians at the time believed the witches were women, usually poor, elderly outcasts of some kind, and they had sold their souls to the devil, and they conspired against people around them. And, you know, the stereotype was that these were selfish women who held grudges, and, you know, we will see that uh, our weird sisters fit this bill. And However, that was in Shakespeare's day. And at the time, the story was set in the 11th century in Scotland, Witches weren't illegal then. And in fact, the original audience of the Macbeth play would understand that paganism was still widely practiced in Scotland at that time. You know, Scotland uh, was Christianized in the 11th century, but recently Christian and lots of pagan practices were still common. So 
In other words, people knew that in the old days, the Scots had a weird religion, but we don't do that anymore. And, you know, another thing about setting uh, the play in a long, long ago in a country far away is, is that the, the Scotland of the 11th century was really unstable politically. They, uh, they thought of Scotland in the old days the way we think of the American Wild West, you know, if you want to make it an American analogy. And we see this in scene two of Act One. Scotland is at war itself pretty much most of the time, and the wars were brutal. I mean, in fact, being king of Scotland wasn't like being king of England. The throne wasn't necessarily passed down from father to son. You know, uh, being the king in Scotland was contested, and men challenged each other for the throne, and they often fought for it. Very different situation. And that's how the play opens. I mean, there are thanes, specifically this one named MacDonald, and they're contesting the rule of King Duncan, and they have brought in warriors from Norway as well as Ireland to fight. Except in Act 1, Scene 2, Macbeth is brave Macbeth, and he's fighting on the side of the reigning king whose name is King Duncan. When King Duncan and his son Malcolm run into a sergeant, the sergeant is covered in blood, and they ask how the battle's going. And he says, really, not good. (laughs) Both sides are killing each other. He uses this swimming metaphor. Read for us his words. Say to the king the knowledge of the broil as thou didst leave it. (laughs) Doesn't explain anything to me. Doubtful it stood as two swimmers that do cling together and choke their art. The merciless MacDonald, worthy to be a rebel, fit for the multiplying villainies of nature, do swim upon him. Now, what does he mean? He goes on to say, you know, that even though MacDonald has horsemen from Ireland uh, and Norwegians and he has luck, you know, none of this is a match for brave Macbeth. Because when Macbeth arrives at the battle, he doesn't even take the time to shake hands or to say goodbye before he literally slices him open from MacDonald's belly to his jaw and he puts his head on the castle wall. Then, when the Norwegians counterattack again, Macbeth and his partner attack back with twice the energy and the supplies. So the soldier that was watching them fight, he called it a Golgotha. That's the location in the Bible where Jesus was crucified. It's memorable. But he's comparing the horrifying bloodiness of this battle to a crucifixion. Ooh, well, you know, that's impressively gory. It's supposed to be. That's another thing about this play. There's so much blood. Uh, But what's even more impressive is that before the sergeant can finish bragging about, you know, Macbeth's fighting prowess and his powers, another thing shows up. This guy's name is Ross, and he has a report about Macbeth, too, from a different skirmish. And this one, you know, Macbeth fought off another insurrectionist, the Thane of Cawdor. Macbeth is the hero of this battle, too. So the king, I mean, he's noticeably absent from the fights, but he's very impressed with these battles. So impressed that on the spot, he decides to give Macbeth the title of the thane that Macbeth has just defeated. So now Macbeth can claim to be the new thane of Cawdor. So, within a few minutes of the beginning of the play, what's happened? We've seen witches. We've had three battles. We've established a hero. And all of this has gone on before we even meet Macbeth. We just hear about him. 
Uh, and what do we know about him? He's this vicious warrior fighting loyally for his King Duncan and succeeding against all these odds. Well, and I would like to point out uh, how excited you must be to have Thanes in the story. I know. I love Thanes. You want to have a football team <laughs> named the Thanes. I would. Right. Well, so we're going to meet him in scene three. And, you know, I noticed the um, stage directions say thunder, but this time no lightning. Yep. And it's night. And, and the witches are back. And they're killing pigs, and they're starting storms in the ocean, and they're inflicting pain on innocent people for petty reasons, and apparently enjoying the chaos that they're creating. When Banquo and Macbeth stumble upon the scene, Macbeth sees the witches and asks them to speak. And when they do, they call him by name. They seem to know him. They know his title, and apparently they know his future. All hail Macbeth, I hail to thee, Thane of Glamis. All hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. All hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king hereafter. Well, that's a pretty nice greeting. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. But remember, these are witches, and they've been creating chaos, and they enjoy it. They freak out Macbeth a little bit. You know, Banquo, his partner, isn't as freaked out by them, and he engages them, and and he says, Macbeth, why are you freaking out? You got a good fortune. Uh, Banquo asks the witches about him. He says, tell me what my future is, and they do, except they equivocate. Less than Macbeth and greater. Not so happy, yet much happier. Thou shalt get kings, thou though thou be none. So all hail Macbeth and Banquo. You know, this is confusing, and and Macbeth tries to get more out of them. He asks them, first of all, how do they know this stuff? But they don't answer. Instead, they literally disappear. Or as Banquo puts it, the earth has bubbles as the water has, and these are of them. Whither are they vanished? And so we end that scene with those two best friends having a look at each other, uh, wondering if they were hallucinating. I mean, one man being told that he will be a king and the next being told that his children will be. Right. And of course, the audience immediately understands, well, that can't end well. I mean, the witches just set these two friends up against each other. Yes. And remember, uh, witches in Shakespeare's day always come from hell. You know, this isn't Samantha from Bewitched or Glenda the Good Witch uh, or Bonnie Bennett from Vampire Diaries. I mean, (laughs) these are witches with cauldrons and potions that are just messing with people's lives. Yes, and here's where we begin with this one big thematic idea that we're going to see Shakespeare weave all throughout the play. Uh, And I want to point out, Macbeth is not a morality play. (laughs) Um, This is not an allegory. This is not a parable or anything like that. He asks a lot of questions in the play, but we don't really see Shakespeare giving us answers. It's like he's showing us a little bit of who we are as people, as humans. But, you know, he's not saying this is how we're supposed to be. You know, um, I think the interaction with the supernatural um, is really a great example of that. And, you know, and I want to talk about our world here um, for a second. 
You know, I think if you just surveyed a cross-section of the American population and asked them if they believed in witches or if they participated in any animistic practices, you know, the majority would just flat out deny it, just like I suspect they would have in Shakespeare's day. Um, Yet, of these same people, how many of them are reading horoscopes or getting their palms read, or at least being, you know, careful to avoid places that they suspect are haunted by ghosts. <laughs> you know, Shakespeare is playing around with this idea. And, you know, how do we feel about the supernatural? How much of an influence does the supernatural have on us? And, you know, I don't think it matters if you're a practicing Christian, Muslim, Hindu, or atheist. Uh, Shakespeare seems to know this about us. Well, he does. I mean, Shakespeare knows a lot about us in many ways. In Act 1, Scene 4, we drop into King Duncan's palace, and, and they have executed the old Thane of Cawdor, the one that had committed treason and Macbeth had taken down. And Macbeth, Banquo, Ross, Angus, these are all Thanes, and they come in, and we learn that Macbeth is Duncan's cousin, so they're related, and we're going to watch the interaction between these two men. One of them is the king. The other one has just saved his cousin, the king, from losing his kingdom. And we watch Duncan make a mistake in dealing with his cousin that actually ends his life. You know, the scene begins with King Duncan talking to his son, Malcolm. The king is just shocked that the old Thane of Caldor turned on him. Apparently, he was a noble person, and Malcolm tells his dad, basically, well, if it makes you feel any better, when he died, he said he sincerely regretted throwing away his life by betraying the king. Let's read the king's response to what his son has to say about the betrayal of the old Thane of Cawdor. There is no art to find the mind's construction in the face. He was a gentleman on whom I built an absolute trust. It's a really interesting line. There's no art to find the mind's construction in the face. That's one of those phrases that when you hear it, you don't really understand what he's talking about. It's a difficult line. Uh, But if you think about it, it, what he's saying is absolutely true. Uh, It's something I've learned the hard way by teaching school. What he means is there's absolutely no way to know if someone's lying to you. There's no art. You can't figure it out. Uh, You can't read the the mind's construction and the face. It can't be done. You may think you can, but you can't. And Duncan, of course, had trusted this man to be his friend. And in the end, the man tried to kill him. You know, which is ironic because um, as he's saying these words, the new Thane of Cawdor is coming in the door. And this new Thane of Cawdor has just been told by the witches that he will be the king of Scotland. You know, and, and if we know something about kings, the one thing we know for sure, the only way to be a king is for the previous king to die. There, I mean, there is no other way. And there's uh, there's no term limits on being king. You're king until you're dead. And so if Macbeth is to be king of Scotland, Duncan must die. Now, we have to be careful here. You know, the witches do not tell Macbeth to kill Duncan. Um, Scotland's violent. You know, the the most likely scenario is that he would die in a battle or maybe he would just get sick. Uh, we must also understand that in the 11th century Scotland, like I said before, kingdoms were not passed down from father to son. In fact, if a child was not of age, they most certainly would not be. 
uh, king. And, and if you're going to designate an heir, which should happen, you would likely designate it to a relative who has a strong, who or who was a strong fighter, you know, who could manage it, one who could defend it, uh, maybe a cousin, perhaps. So, you know, when Macbeth enters that room, we should understand that he was told he is going to be king. He just fought for a kingdom. It's not unreasonable to think that Duncan would acknowledge this, but Duncan is old, and Duncan doesn't. No, and, and actually, two lines later, he does the opposite. And you whose places are the nearest know, we will establish our estate upon our eldest, Malcolm, who we name hereafter the Prince of Cumberland, which honor must not accompany and invest him only. But signs of nobleness like stars shall shine on all deservers from hence to Inverness and bind us further to you. Again, this takes a little work and context to understand what he's saying. But the Prince of Cumberland was the title for the heir apparent. You know, we, we think of, in Great Britain, the Prince of Wales. That's the title to the heir apparent of the crown of, of Great Britain. So when King Charles, who today became the King of Britain, before he was the king, when Queen Elizabeth was the queen, he was the Prince of Wales. Well, the day that he became king... Prince William, his son, became the new Prince of Wales. I don't know if that makes sense. But in England, the, their version of that is the Prince of Cumberland. So when Duncan says that my son will be the Prince of Cumberland, he's letting people know who his heir apparent is. He's telling his attentions. He is not going to be handing this kingdom over to his cousin, Macbeth. He intends on passing down the title to his son. And he says this, oh, by the way, I'm coming over to your house. And we know that he means that he's going to Macbeth's house because Macbeth in the play lives in Inverness. So he says, from hence to Inverness and bind us further to you. In other words, I'm going to your house. When Macbeth hears this, he responds with a cryptic line. He says this, the rest is labor, which is not used for you. I'll be myself the harbinger and thankful joy the hearing of my wife with your approach. So humbly take my leave. Again, these are difficult lines to decode. But the way we would say this is anything not done for you is hard work. I'm out of here. I need to go tell my wife you're coming. You know, when Macbeth leaves the presence of the king, he says something to himself that the audience hears, but he doesn't say it to anyone else on stage. It's called an aside, and, an as- and this play is full of asides. Uh, okay, so take a second to remind us what an aside is. Sure. An aside is when a character kind of turns his head to the side, at least metaphorically, and he says something out loud. Now, there could be other characters on stage, but they pretend that they can't hear him. Or he's, there's no one on stage, and he's just talking to himself. But the purpose of an aside is for the audience to know what is inside the character's mind, what he's thinking. Uh, And this is kind of very important, especially in this context. So let's listen to Macbeth's aside here. So this is what he's thinking. The Prince of Cumberland, that is a step on which I must fall down or else or leap. For in my way it lies, stars hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. The eye wink at the hand, yet let that be 
which the eye fears when it is done to see. The Prince of Cumberland is a step on which I must fall down or else overleap, for in my way it lies. I think we can understand that. What's he talking about? What's in his way? He's talking about the stepping stone to being king. He must either take down or jump over the Prince of Cumberland. Duncan didn't make him the Prince of Cumberland. He made Malcolm the Prince of Cumberland. So Macbeth is thinking, what should I do about it? Or should I do anything? And then we get this insight into Macbeth's heart. He says this, Let not light see my black and deep desires. The eyes want at the hand, yet let that be which the eye fears when it is done to see. (laughs) So in other words, um, he's thinking about murder. Yes. Don't let anyone see it. Don't let anyone know it. My eye fears looking at it, but I sure am visualizing it. You know, the Tennessee Shakespeare Company visited our school this year, and they worked with our kids. It's a great organization. They work with thousands of kids, helping them understand Shakespeare. So when they came to my class, they played this game, and they had all the kids get in a circle. And they said, if you identify with this statement, step inside the circle. And so they started off with silly questions. Did you eat breakfast this morning? Is anybody wearing socks? Stuff like that. But then they get to the real question of the play, and they ask this. Has anyone here done something they thought was wrong, but they decided to do it anyway. <laughs> oh, they're asking that of teenagers, of course. Well, I mean, that's a great question. So what happened? Every single kid <laughs> stepped course. into the circle. I, I was shocked that we had that many honest kids. Uh, you know, it's arguable, but uh, I think this is what makes Macbeth a tragedy and not a history. Remember, tragedies are about main characters that are noble, It has to be. They have to be. It's not a tragedy if somebody bad falls. Uh, But Macbeth, he's such a strange, tragic hero because he is horrible from beginning to the end. I mean, the first thing we know about him, he's beheading a person. The second thing we know about it, he's thinking about killing the king, something that in 1606, not only would you get killed for, but you would go to hell for that. So in what way is this guy possibly better than us, the audience? Or in what way maybe is he like us? And, and that's the question. And, and maybe it's in this sense. I mean, don't we all want power? I mean, don't we all also have a sense of morality? At, at least we know in our own minds what we consider to be good people. Uh, what happens when we violate our own sense of right and wrong? You know, and my kids are being honest when they go into the circle. We all have violated our own sense of right and wrong. I mean, there's biblical language to talk like that. We all can say we have sinned. Uh, And Macbeth is kind of an expression of that idea. But here's an even bigger question. Whose fault is it that he violates his own sense of right and wrong? I mean, his own sense of morality. Whose fault is it that that he's going to sin, if we want to use that word? Is it the witch's fault? I mean, they did suggest it, or maybe they foresaw it. Is it Macbeth's fault? I mean, in the very next scene, we're going to introduce another participant in his tyranny, and some people blame her, Lady Macbeth. But Macbeth the play 
at its core, is a play about agency. To what degree are we responsible for our actions? And what are the consequences when we surrender our agency, our ability to choose, to passion, to desire, to ambition, to suggestion, to anything? Well, you know, uh, no wonder the play is dark. I mean, you know, and so far everything is at night. Yes, exactly. Let not light see my black and deep desires. If this does not express something you have thought before, you are not being honest enough with yourself. What do we do with our black and deep desires? And what happens when we surrender to them? It's an old, it's an ancient question. In fact, it's the question embedded in the first story of the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve who surrendered their morality to the voice of a serpent. It's there... In their case, it was a desire for knowledge, to be like God. In Shakespeare's story, it's the desire to be king. Well, um, we just got really philosophical all of a sudden. (laughs) I know. Like I said, Shakespeare's fun. There's witches. There's action. There's beheadings. But the more you pay attention, the more he gives you to think about. But again, like I said... Don't expect any answers to these questions I'm asking. I mean, that's his genius. He will posit a question, but it's on you to sort out the answer. You know, that sounds like a pretty clever equivocation, if I can use that (laughs) word. I guess it is. Well, thank you for listening. Um, And this is the first of five episodes where we will discuss the big ideas and other points of interest in this great story of Macbeth. And uh, we hope you'll continue with us. And today we discussed a little of the history of the play, a little context in the first four scenes. And, you know, next episode we will introduce Lady Macbeth and the only Shakespearean character to get her own entry into the Oxford Dictionary. Uh, and as well as we'll discuss the rest of Act 1 and Act 2. Don't forget, you can always find us at howtolovelitpodcast.com. On our website, we have listening guides for most of our uh, episodes, as well as teaching resources. Also, whether you are a teacher or a student or a fellow lover of literature, please subscribe to our podcast via our YouTube channel or Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating. If you like what you hear, possibly a review. It's when you share about the podcast to our friends on social media that we grow. Thank you for supporting us in our mission to make reading great literature accessible, enjoyable to as many people as possible. Peace out.